Well, we are in John chapter 11, and what's fascinating about John's gospel is he says, I write these things so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and have eternal life. And uh, right at the end of the gospel of John, he, he talks about that Jesus did many other miracles. And uh, he said that if they were actually written down, he says, I suppose they're, they're you know, they're, that the world itself, he says, would not contain all the books that would be written. Isn't that interesting? What an interesting comment that is. Wouldn't you love to know and see all the other miracles uh, that, that Jesus did? I, I think it would be pretty amazing. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the greatest miracle that he did in the raising of Lazarus. It's recorded in John uh, chapter 11, and it is so appropriate for uh, Easter Sunday because it is really just full of meaning and, uh, and reality for us as Christ followers. So we're going to read a, a substantial size of scripture today. And, uh, and so we're going to start in John chapter 11, verse 17. I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of reverence for the word of God given to us. And so John writes this, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could, he not, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took, him, they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. 
But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went on to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You may be seated. Even in a divided country like we, we have right now, I, I, think there's, I think there's one subject that we can all agree on, and that subject is death. H- how many of you are big fans of death? H- how many of you are pro-death today? Somebody asked uh, Woody Allen, what do you think about death? And Woody Allen responded by saying, I'm strongly against it. You see, the Bible says that uh, death is our, our last and greatest enemy. And what we know from experience is death is relentless, right? We, we know that death is, is, is heinous. It really is. You know, this week as I was prepping this message, I, I just started scanning the headlines and I, I read about a married couple in Northern California, Jake and Jessica Woodruff. They had been driving in Northern California and they, were, they had been celebrating Jessica's 45th birthday. They were the parents of five children. And they were driving through the redwood forest when a 175-foot-tall redwood tree fell and landed on their car and killing them instantly. Authorities, when they arrived on the scene, said they, they looked at the tree. They said they had no idea why this tree fell. They couldn't even explain it. But it did fall, and it killed this couple instantly. You know, death is relentless, isn't it? And it's all around us. I was reading another story about a young couple expecting their first child and they were going to do a, a gender reveal. They had planned to do it on the beach and they invited their family members and friends and they had hired a, a, a pilot to fly a plane over the, their location on the beach. And then he was supposed to, right at the right time, unleash this banner that would reveal the gender of their, of their child. Well, something went horribly wrong. And, and so as the plane started doing stunts, it just suddenly turned uncontrollably down into the ocean and crashed and killed everybody on board. See, death is just, it's just awful. It is, it is relentless. And the thing that we know is death is coming for us one day. We know the handwriting is on the wall for us. We know it's, it's unavoidable. And what we also know is even before we die, we're going to experience the sting of death over and over and over again. You know, years ago, I was, I was counseling a, a lady in our church, a dear friend in our church, and she had, she had come to me just because of a problem that she was facing in her life. And she we sat down in my office and she started kind of unpacking the problem and, and uh, she was a widow and she started explaining, you know, just the story of how her husband passed away uh, 20 years earlier and she just started sobbing. She just started weeping and, uh, and it didn't, 
take long for me to figure out that the, the real problem was not the problem that she had come, to, come see me to talk about. The problem was she was still grieving the loss of her husband from 20 years ago. It was so fresh in her mind. Her husband's passing away was so fresh in her mind. It was like it happened just 24 hours before, before I even met with her. See, the reality is, is we hate death because of what it does to us. Because of what it does to the people that we love. It's absolutely relentless. You know, there's a strange verse in the Bible. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And uh, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature of the scripture. And it just says something just kind of out of the blue. You're reading through Ecclesiastes and it just kind of hits you. that This is really strange. You're asking the question, what does it say? Here's what it says. The, The writer of Ecclesiastes says, If you belong to God, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. And I'm reading that and I'm thinking to myself, how in the world can that be true? You ever thought about that? How in the world could that be true? That the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. I mean, most of the time, you know, when you die, you die in your old age and your body's breaking down, you're old and decrepit and it's, it's awful and ugly and hard. And, and if you die young every time, that's a tragedy. But on your birthday, man, everybody's excited. You know, everybody's happy. Everybody's raining down gifts on you and holding you and ooing and awing over, over you because you've got your entire life in front of you. Your birthday's a great day. So how in the world can your day of death be better than the, than the day of your birth? I think there's only one way. I think there's only one word that makes the day of your death better than the day of your birth, and that word is resurrection. That's the word. And that's why we have gathered today. We, we, we gather to celebrate Easter, and Easter marks the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Easter and the resurrection changes everything about our lives. This is the greatest day in the history of the world, church. Nothing even comes close. And so what we have in this story is really the story of two women, Mary and Martha, who summoned Jesus to come to their house because Lazarus, their brother, was very, very sick. And so, and so Jesus arrives a little late. Jesus arrives just, uh, you know, just, just late and, and Lazarus is dead. And Jesus is very close to this family. He's, he's very close to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He had a special relationship with them. So he shows up kind of late. And so Mary and Martha are grieving the loss of their brother. The entire community is trying to find words to comfort them in the midst of their grief because they know how relentless and how heinous death is. And so Jesus shows up. And here's the interesting thing. You know, Mary and Martha, you know, they, they believed in resurrection someday. But man, they had no idea that it was about to happen that day. And there might be a lot of you that maybe you believe in a resurrection someday. My prayer for you is that there would be a resurrection today. See, there's got to be, a, there's gotta be a, a resurrection within us before our body can be raised. And so here's what I want to just try to answer today. What has to happen so that, the, so that the day of your death is better than the day of your birth? What has to take place for that to happen? Well, I think, I think there are two answers to that question. And so... Today, I just want to share two points with you. I'm giving you an Easter treat. I normally do three, all right? Uh, I'm just going to give you two today. See, for the day of your death to be better than the day of your birth, number one, you got to see who Jesus is. 
you got to see who he really is. And then number two, you got to see what he came to do. So let's look at this. Let's see who Jesus, let's see Jesus for who he is. You know, when I talk about seeing Jesus for who he really is, what I'm talking about really is just seeing the glory of God beholding the glory of Jesus. That's what I'm talking about when I, when, I, when I mention seeing Jesus for who he is. In John chapter one, verse 14, John records this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he says, we have seen his glory. We are eyewitnesses of his glory. We were there. We've seen it up close and personal. The, 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 the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. We've eyeballed it. That's what John is saying. We have beheld his glory. We have seen Jesus for who he is. Now, who is Jesus? He's, he is the son of God, right? He is God in the flesh. He came to the earth and, and walked in a physical body. He lived the life that we, that we have lived. And John says, we have beheld his glory and this glory is full of grace and truth. Now, what's fascinating about the story that we've read is Mary and Martha also experienced the glory of Jesus. They also beheld his glory. And they behold his glory in the midst of, as they are in the throes of gut-wrenching grief. And they experience it in a life-changing way. And so, and so Lazarus has gotten sick and he's died. Jesus arrives. Everybody is grieving. Jesus arrives kind of into the village and Martha is the first one to to greet Jesus, to welcome him as he's, as he's you know, arrived. And, and you see what she says in verse 21. She says, you know, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then you skip down to verse 32 as he interacts with Mary a little bit later on. She says the exact same thing to him. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And so what you have is you have two women who are experiencing the same depth of grief and who say the exact same thing to Jesus. And yet what's fascinating about this is Jesus responds to them so differently. He responds to them in completely two different ways. He reveals his glory to them in two different ways. One commentator said about this passage, uh, the commentator said, there's no way someone is making this up. There's no way this is, this is fiction. Because if you're writing a story like this, you're not going to write, you're not going to describe two women experiencing the same grief, saying the same thing to Jesus, but him reacting to them in completely two different ways. There's just too much disjunction there. And so it just has this mark of, man, this is real. So let's just take Martha first. She says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. I don't think she's complaining. I don't think she's I don't think she's really being critical. I think what she's saying is she knows that she's seen Jesus heal hundreds of people. And she knows that she and her sister did everything she, that they could to save their brother Lazarus. And she's just thinking realistically, if you just had been here, you could have healed him. She's just kind of saying a, a statement of fact. And it's fascinating how Jesus responds to her in this way. What he does is he challenges Martha with the truth of who he is. And so Jesus pushes back on her and says, in verse 23, you see this, he says, your brother will rise again. Now Martha's a good, Martha's a good Jew. Their, their parents raised you know, good, 
good Jewish kids, and, and so they knew the doctrine of the resurrection in Judaism. They, they understood that, that there would be a, a resurrection at the end of time. And so she says to Jesus, I know that one day, I know that someday he will rise from the dead and, and be resurrected. And what does Jesus say? He says, I'm not talking about someday, I'm talking about today. And he looks at Martha and he says this, I am the resurrection. Resurrection has just walked into your village. And this gets her attention. And basically what Jesus is saying is this, I, I, I know you believe in resurrection someday, and that's good, but I'm bringing a resurrection today. I don't just have power to, to facilitate a resurrection. I am resurrection, Martha. I, I, I don't just have access to life. I am life. And what, and what Jesus wants Martha to really understand, what he's really trying to influence her in her understanding and her perspective, he, wants her, he really wants her to see that resurrection is not an event, it's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. That is who he, who he is. And that's why he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says, do you, do you believe this? Now, this is, this is amazing. You, you have to ask the question, how is this even possible? Um, what Jesus is really talking about here is, I think he's talking about that there has to be a, a resurrection of our physical bodies. What we know is that we live in a sin-cursed world. We know that there is death and disease and decay, and we know our bodies are breaking down every single day. Church, do we know that? Do you understand that? Yeah, we all do know that. And so it's a direct consequence of sin. And so what brought death and disease and decay into the world was our sin. And so that's why there is death in the world. It's because, because of our rebellion. And so our bodies begin to break down and cease to function. And so we're going to need new ones. We're going to have to put off mortality and put on immortality. And we can't manufacture that for ourselves. But there's an even deeper problem here. And the deeper problem is this. It's not just our bodies that are broken. It's our souls that are broken as well. You see, what I know is this, is there's a gravitational pull in me to try to find life outside of God. There's a gravitational pull in you that looks for life and significance and satisfaction and fulfillment in anything other than God. And that gravitational pull is in all of us. And so, and so there's something that has been corroded. There's something that's been deeply broken within us. Yes, we are loved by God. We are image bearers of God, but we are broken at the core of who we are. And we, we all know that we are not what we're supposed to be. You know, we know we're supposed to be loving and kind, right? But what's the truth? We're not always loving and kind. You know, this past week I was eating at Humble Taco. You should eat there, it's really good. Um, <clears throat> and I just looked up on the back wall and there's a neon sign on the back wall that said something interesting. You would think it would say, our tacos are the best or something like that, you know? You know what it says? Be kind. 
And you see it on billboards, you see it on commercials, uh, you see it everywhere we go in our society because the reality is, the implication is, we're not always loving and we're not always kind. And we fall short and we know it. We're supposed to care for the poor, but the truth is we don't always make time to care for the poor. And the reality is we hardly ever even think about it. We're supposed to be patient with our kids, but I find myself, you know, yelling at my kids. We're supposed to be generous, but the, the reality is most of the time we're stingy. And so we need a transformation, right? We, we, we need a transformation that we can't manufacture. No matter how hard we try or how much we do or what we read or how many religious services we attend, what we need is we need an internal resurrection. It's not just that we need a new body, but we need a new heart and new mind. And what Jesus is saying is this, I am resurrection and life. And if you will believe in me, if you will attach yourself to me, then my life will come to you and give you that internal resurrection and not just an internal resurrection, but an external one as well. And you know what, church? The internal one can happen today. Not someday, but today. You see, resurrection is really where the life of God enters us and heals our soul. It's where, it's where he changes us on the inside. It's where he takes us. He takes us in our emptiness and he fulfills us. He takes our fear and our anxiety and he fills us with security and peace. You know, he, he takes our judgmental and arrogant attitude and he humbles us and helps us to see the truth. He takes our timidity, our fear, and he gives us courage he takes our addiction and sets us free. That's what the Spirit of God can do. That's the only change that God can bring. I was reading about a 23-year-old guy named Brent, Brenton Wynn. And uh, he was a meth addict and he was angry at God because he re relapsed back into his addiction. And uh, Wynn didn't really know anything about Central Baptist Church in Conway, Arkansas. But um, what he did is he got high that night, broke into the church, and for whatever reason just went crazy, caused about $100,000 worth of damage, and um, the police arrived and arrested him and hauled him away. The DA was about to throw the book at him, and uh, the pastor of the church went, went to the DA and said, look, his life is redeemable. We don't, we don't need to destroy his life over this. And so he and the DA started talking, and you know, he said, look, we've got a ministry at our church called Renewal Ranch. It's a, you know, drug addiction, kind of alcohol recovery ministry. And uh, what you could do is offer that his sentence would be to Renewal Ranch. And so, uh, so they talked it over and they got it cleared through the judge. The judge happened to be on the board of this ministry, Renewal Ranch. So he was all for it. And so the judge offered him, he offered this Britain win. He said, uh, I, you know, you can, you can go with a 20-year sentence or you can, you can serve your time at Renewal Ranch. He said, I'll, I'll serve my time at Renewal Ranch. Thank you. And uh, so he started getting involved in the ministry and they, they started discipling him and getting him into community and teaching him the word of God and, and surrounding him with love and care. And uh, six months after his arrest for destroying Central Baptist Church in Conway, 
Arkansas. He was baptized at Central Baptist Church in Conway, Arkansas. Isn't that amazing? Here's what he said. He said, I gave my heart to Christ. He said, I used to think it was a coincidence that I chose to break into the church, uh, but now I call it confirmation that God exists and God answers prayers. He said, I needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. Church, you know what that is? That's internal resurrection. And only the Spirit of God can do that. And so Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? I wonder what you would say today. Maybe some of you push back and say, well, you know, I would believe it if I had an encounter with the risen Christ. Let, let, me, let me just tell you, you're encountering the risen Christ right now. Because we've read about him, you've heard him, he is here, his spirit is in this room, and you are not at this Easter service today by accident. And it could be that the spirit of God is saying to you right now, it is your resurrection day, it is time for you to stop avoiding me, and for you to rise to a whole new life. And so Martha experiences the glory of God through Jesus sharing the truth of who he is. But, I, but it's interesting, Mary, what about her? Well, she comes up and she experiences the glory of God too. And she comes up to Jesus and she says, oh, if you'd only been here, my, my, brother, would not have, my brother would not have died. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't say anything to her, which is amazing. I don't know if you noticed that. He's just quiet, just silent. And... Uh, she experiences the glory of God compassionately through his tears. Because you see it in verse 35. Look at, look at what verse 35 says. Jesus wept. Now, if you ever want to start memorizing scripture, that's a great verse to start with. You get one on your belt right there. Jesus wept. She experiences the glory of God the presence of God weeping with her. Think about that, church. Can you imagine that, that God weeps with us? That he understands our pain? He understands our grief? He understands our loss? He's experienced it. He's walked through it. He knows exactly the pain that you're going through right now. And he weeps with you. Have you ever wept over the brokenness of the world? The brokenness of relationships? What sin does to us, what death does to us, we all have. And Jesus has with us. And some of you are like, well, why in the world is he crying? I mean, he knows he's going he's to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why doesn't he just say, let's turn off the water spigots here. Let's get, let's get busy and let's turn this place into party central. Why is Jesus weeping here? Why does it say in verse 35 that Jesus wept? Well, I, I think that he saw beyond Mary and Martha that day. I, I, think, I think he saw beyond all the people in the village trying to comfort them. I, I, think he, I, I think he looked past, looked all the way down the corridors of history, and he saw in AD 70 where Jerusalem was going to fall to the Romans and be absolutely wiped out where thousands of people are going to die in the city of Jerusalem. I think Jesus saw that. I, I think he, he looks down the corridor of history and I think he sees the Holocaust and I think he sees two planes flying into the World Trade Center one day and I think he sees a guy who walks into a grocery store in Boulder, Colorado and opens fire on a bunch of people. I think Jesus sees all of that and he weeps over it because of what it does to us. 
He sees it and he's grieved and he weeps. He is the God who feels our pain. He's the God who understands our grief and he hates death because of what it does to us. He hates it. And so, and so that's, that's, that's what's working here. And so Mary experiences the love and the glory of Jesus and it changes her. Now here's my question, church. Do you know his love and his glory? Have you experienced it? Have you seen his glory? Do you delight in knowing and loving Jesus? I'm not, I'm not asking you, do you believe in the doctrines of Christianity? That's not what I'm asking. The demons believe in the doctrines of Christianity. I'm asking, are you drawn to the beauty and the power and the compassion of Jesus? I, I love the story of a guy named Malcolm Muggeridge. Uh, he was an atheist in Great Britain. Uh, he was sent to do a documentary on Mother Teresa. And uh, he was called the cynic of cynics. You couldn't get more cynical than Malcolm Muggeridge. And uh, so he goes and does this documentary on Mother Teresa. She's doing ministry in India. And uh, she's, he spends two weeks with her and he commits his life to Christ right then and there. And the title of his documentary is, is Something Beautiful for God. Now, why the change? because of the internal resurrection that happened in him. He saw the glory of God. I think about a professor at MIT, Dr. Rosalind Picard. She's a, she's a professor at MIT. She was an atheist and she dismissed Christians. She had dismissed believers as being uneducated and ignorant. And uh, she felt like as an educated person, she needed to read the Bible for herself and at least understand what's inside the Bible. Well, something happened when she started reading it. She says this, when I first opened the Bible, I expected to find phony miracles and assorted gobbledygook. To my surprise, the book of Proverbs was full of wisdom. And it stopped me dead in my tracks, she said. She read through the entire Bible twice. She said, I felt this strange sense of someone speaking to me as I was reading it. And she said, part of me was eager, increasingly eager to spend time with the God of the Bible, but, but there was also an irritated voice inside of me insisting that I would be much happier if I just moved on from this. Well, God kept working in her life and finally a friend invited her to church and she came and listened to the sermon. And, and, so, and so the pastor was talking about how Jesus wants to be Lord of your life. And she was blown away at that. She was like, I've always been the captain of my ship. I've always been char in charge. I've always been strong. But she was intrigued by the idea that God would want to guide and lead her life. And she yielded her life to Christ. And here's what she says, today I work closely with people whose lives are filled with medical struggles. I don't have adequate answers to explain all their suffering, but I do know this, I know that there is a God of unfathomable greatness and love who freely enters into relationship with all who confess their sins and call upon their name. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God, but now I know 
I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author, capital A, of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today, I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ever ask for, filled with the desire to keep learning and exploring. Here's my question, church. Do you know him? Because here you have someone who struggled with drugs, and here you have an MIT professor saying, saying, the glory of God is real. And I want to see if, do you know who he is? Well, that's, that's who Jesus is. And uh, that's Mary and Martha. Well, what about Lazarus? Well, let me, let me let's talk about who, what Jesus came to do. Jesus is the God-man who enters into our world to take on our last and greatest enemy. He came to conquer our greatest enemy, death. He came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus, our big brother, fights for us. And you see this in verse 33. This is a very interesting verse. Let me just, let me just read it to you. John records this. When, I saw, when, I, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, that's an interesting phrase, greatly troubled. The, the translators struggle in how to translate that because there's, there's a range of meanings with that phrase, greatly troubled. So they're just kind of not sure which direction to go with it. But can I just tell you which direction to go with it? I, I think what, what's happening here is Jesus is ticked off. I think he sees what's going on. He sees the grief and devastation that death has caused. And I think he's angry, church. I think he's enraged. I, I think it's kind of like a lion roaring at our greatest enemy. I think that's what's happening here. I think he's disturbed because of, you know, because of the circumstances. And you're like, well, who is he mad at? Is he mad at Mary and Martha because maybe they don't believe? No. He's not mad at Mary and Martha. Is he mad at God? Is he mad at himself for letting Lazarus die? That's where a lot of us would go. No, he's not mad at himself. You know what he's mad at? He's mad at sin and death. That's what he's mad at. And he's gonna do something about it. That's what he's gonna do. Now, some of you might push back and say, well, you know, you just got to accept death. I mean, it's kind of natural. You just, you just got to roll with it. It's kind of normal. I mean, you're born and you grow and then you, you know, you peak and then you're on the downslope, you know, and a lot of us are on the downslope, you know, but you're, you're, we're on that downslope and then you die. It's just kind of part of that, part of that thing, you know, that we all have to accept. The problem with that thinking is church is Jesus doesn't feel that way. That's the problem with that kind of thinking because the reality is, is death is not normal. You and I were not created to die. We were not created to be separated from our loved ones. And what death is, is, is an intrusion into what God has planned. It'd be kind of like you're coming home from work one day and you found that somebody's broken into your home and just slaughtered your family, just wiped out your family, just killed your family. How would, what, what would your response be? You know, would you go out in the front yard with the police officers and say, can we just join hands and sing Elton John's Circle of Life right now? Can we just do that? You know, because that, that's just kind of the way it is. You know, you just got to accept it and run with it. No, you would be horrified and you would be ticked off. You would be so angry. You couldn't even register it on the anger scale. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's greatly troubled. He's, he's groaning internally because of what sin and death does to you and to me. Well, finally, he uh, decides to take action and he goes, goes over to the tomb and uh, he says to everyone there, he says, roll away the stone. And uh, Martha objects. She's like, Lord, there's going to be an odor. And I love how the King James Version translates it. It says, uh, uh, Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. Just straight shooter, you know, just. And it's interesting because you have this, this observation, this detail that he'd been dead four days. Now, what's interesting about that detail is in Jewish superstition, Jewish folk folklore, most people believe they had this superstition that the soul hung around the body for three days. And so within that three-day period, there was still a chance that that person would come back to life because the soul had not completely departed that person's body. But by the fourth day, yeah, you could, yeah, they were deader in the doorknob at that point. So, so that's why it mentions that he is there on, on, uh, on day four, that he had been dead four days. And so, and so she says, Lord, there's going to be an odor. And... Um, and so Jesus looks up in heaven, he prays, everybody's watching him, there are all kinds of people watching this. And he says, Father, I just want to thank you that you always hear me. And uh, I want to thank you that you hear me now. Because he, he wanted the people to see this is something that God was doing in their midst so that they would believe. And then he says at that moment, Lazarus, come forth. Now, at that moment, church, if we could just call time out right at that moment, all of human history hangs in the balance. Your eternity in that moment hangs in the balance. Because if, if no one comes out of that tomb, Jesus is a fraud and you and I are dead in our sins. And so he says, Lazarus, come forth. Now the early church father said it was a good thing that Jesus had said Lazarus because if he didn't say Lazarus, if he just said come forth, then all the dead and all the tombs in that area would have come to him that day. And Jesus is saying, now I'm specifying, I just want Lazarus. Lazarus, come on down, all right? And uh, do you know what happens? The miraculous happens. A miracle. Do, do you believe in miracles, church? Because that's what happened that day. Do you know what resurrection is? It's a miracle. Do you know what's bigger than physical resurrection? Internal resurrection. It's so much bigger. And so the miraculous happens. And you can only imagine the scene at that graveside that day. You can only imagine it. You guys know I love sports. I love, uh, I love the great iconic calls of sports announcers through sports history. And uh, there, there are a number of them out there and people debate which one's the best. Uh, but I think the one that sticks out in my mind is 1980, the miracle on ice. The United States of America is going against the Soviet Union. This is the height of the Cold War. And uh, the United States hockey team is just a bunch of amateurs, just a bunch of ordinary guys. And our country was struggling. 
we were unified at that time, but we were struggling. There was an energy crisis, inflation, the whole nine yards. You know, the kind of the national esteem was just kind of low at that point. And so the um, entire world is watching this. And uh, the United States pulls off the greatest upset that has to be in sports history. There's no question. There's no way, they said, the United States could beat the Soviet Union. This is amateurs against professionals, basically. And church, they did it. And I love the call of Al Michaels. I'm going to show it to you. He asked, do you believe in miracles? Watch this. The Yolentinov gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! And the reality of what we see, the joy of what we see in that clip pales in comparison to what happened at the tomb of Lazarus. You could, you, you could just only imagine it. Church, what happened is Lazarus walked out of that tomb and our greatest enemy is defeated once and for all. It is really what happened is the death of death that day. The death of death. And it was a preemptive strike. It was a, it was a warm-up for resurrection Sunday that was to come. Now, how in the world did Jesus do that? I mean, what kind of trick did he pull to just do that? Well, um, he would do it through his own death on the cross. And what the Bible says is he was slain from the foundation of the world. So it was in, it was in the plan of God from the very beginning. And what's ironic about this story is what we know from the Gospel of John, from John's writing this, we know that this miracle was so prominent, it was so decisive, it was so public, it sealed Jesus' fate that day. It sealed it. Because the religious leaders began to say it was the straw and the camel's back, basically, that they needed to kill Jesus. And they immediately began plotting to make that become a reality. You see, Jesus knew that ultimately the only way to pull you out of the grave and to get me out of the grave was to put himself inside the grave. The only way to save me and you from the jaws of death would be to let those very jaws come down on him. And I love what the hymn writer says, oh, how he loves you and oh, how he loves me. That he died so that we could live. Do you believe it? Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, I want to believe. What do I, what do I need to do? Well, it's very simple. You repent of your sins and you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. It is so simple, church. You, you believe Jesus took your place and died for you. And you repent of your sins. And, and what happens is by the grace of God, by faith, this grace enters us and raises us from the dead and awakens our heart to the Spirit of God so that now we, we are in tune with the Spirit. We know His grace. We know His love. We know His power and is at work setting us free and changing us. And so, and so that's the question. Is that the step you want to take today? What's fascinating is John tells us also that 
many people that saw it that day, that saw that tremendous miracle, many of them believed, but a lot of them didn't. They went and told the religious leaders what Jesus had done. And so here's the question, what will it be for you? Which way are you going? I'm just here to tell you that there's a resurrection for you today if you believe. Some will be pushed back and you say, well, you know, I just, I, I'm just not good at this, God. I don't have what it takes. I can't do it. You know, I just, I just can't get my life together. Here's the reality, church. Lazarus couldn't do it either. He was dead. And what, God's, what Jesus said to him, he just simply called him and said, get up and come to me. And he'll do that for you as well. So today, I just want to challenge you to repent and believe the gospel. And if you do that, your death day will be greater than your birthday. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we are amazed at the grace that you offer to us. We're amazed at the life that we have, that we've been offered. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. God, I pray that today for every single person in this room that you would reveal your glory to us, that we would see the glory of who you are, the glory of the fact that you are resurrection and life and, and the fact that just the glory of your compassionate tears. God, would you open our eyes to, to your glory? Would you just dull the world around us so that we can see ultimate reality, you and your love and what you came to do? And so God, may your Holy Spirit be free to work today. You know, with a crowd this size, I, I know there's many of you that want to take a step. So I'm just going to ask you just to keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. And I, I think there's some here that you want to cross over from death to life. You, you want to move from darkness to light. You want to commit your life to Jesus Christ. It's, it's really simple. It's repenting and believing and if you're willing to take that step today, I, I would like to lead you in a prayer. If you just silently just repeat this prayer in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins and raise me from the dead. Lord, I ask that you would grant to me the gift of salvation, the gift of an internal resurrection so that, so that it would be a down payment of my one day external resurrection. God, put your spirit in me that as I commit myself to following you, that I may, I may live a life that pleases you and brings glory to you in all that I do. Save me from my sins and make me a child of God by your grace through faith in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen.